Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. 2020 has just started and we've already found our calling. It's episode 297 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. In case you didn't know, season two of Manifest is finally here. That's right. This Monday, January the 6th on NBC. That is the day. And this week, going to be talking to Parveen Kaur, who plays Sanvi Ball, Dr. Sanvi, on Manifest. And let's face it, if you remember what happened last season, yeah, kind of a lot going on for Dr. Sanvi right now. So we're going to be asking her about that, her new therapist, by the way. Yeah, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Cal's revelation from the finale and a whole bunch more. And that, there's a reason that season, the season two premiere is called Fasten Your Seatbelts. And yeah, I can't wait for 10 o'clock. On Monday. Cannot wait for that premiere. Also, if you've been waiting for my spoiler-filled review of Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, going to be doing that, plus talking about the Mandalorian finale. So a double review week, some very interesting Marvel movie news. We'll talk about all that. But up next, let's start first time in 2020. It's what we're reading, talking comics, next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Benjamin Percy, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Bags and boards and tablets, oh my, whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading for the first time in 2020. Great way to kick it off, too, with Thor number one from Marvel Comics, written by Donny Cates, Nick Klein on the art, Matthew Wilson helping out on the colors, VCs Joe Sabino on the letters, and Olivier Coppiel and Laura Martin on the cover, which is really great, by the way, if you haven't seen it yet. Now, here's the thing, Thor's finally kind of taken the throne It may have actually brought peace to the realms. The only one that doesn't seem peaceful is the king himself. I mean, we get grumpy Thor a lot in this book, actually. So so just prepare yourself for that. His demeanor is very, very interesting, and his interaction with some of the characters that we know from the story are pretty interesting as well. Then everything literally comes to a crashing halt right in the middle of... Of this book, I mean, really out of nowhere, and and a very familiar character drops in on Asgard. Now, the message sent by this character, and again, no spoilers in these reviews, so I don't I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't read the book yet. And the message is pretty dire. It's delivered by this character, and it leads to some very immediate action and some vi- and a very interesting team up for some characters that you're gonna probably want to stand up and cheer that you are, A, not only seeing, but B, also going to be seeing them together. That much I can tell you right now, because it, it, it is actually pretty exciting. And part one is called The Black Winter, in case you didn't know, and it's called that for a reason, it will be a big part of what's coming in this particular arc of the story. But the premise of this story is actually very interesting when it gets violently shifted into this other direction, but there also seems to be a long game here that that Kate's is working on, and I really, really hope that that gets a chance to play itself out as it res- as it relates to the first part 
of what this story is. I just feel like there's a callback that's waiting to happen sometime in a future issue here. And if you've read the book, you understand what I'm talking about. And and I and I like that there's that confidence in the story right off the bat and that we're not automatically jumping into what happens in the middle of this book. Sure, it still happens and still going to be dealt with in this first arc, but clearly there's some some groundwork that's being laid here that could really set up for a lot of issues, and I hope that's exactly what Marvel's plan is. And I mean, not to mention the art's pretty stellar as well. I mean, you know, when you get Nick Klein on a book, you're, you're going to get really good art. There's some uh, quite a few actually eye-popping moments towards the end, too, that I really, really loved. And the character designs, I thought, were pretty interesting as well for for a couple of the characters that looked maybe just a little bit different. I also have another beard to aspire to. I think my beard's getting pretty thick right now, the thicker, thickest that it's ever been. So by the time this hits issue, I don't know, 100, maybe I'll have my beard to where Thor has his in the beginning of this book. But I got to tell you, I, I, don't, I can't remember the last time I enjoyed a Thor book this much. And I know I'm a Donny Cates fan anyway. So, I mean, maybe that's part of it. I just, I just have enjoyed almost everything that he's done. This is a poll for me. I think this is a new and exciting direction that Marvel's taking Thor. And I can't wait to see not only how this first arc plays out, but how the long game gets executed as well. Got another Stranger Things story from Dark Horse Comics to look forward to. As a matter of fact, Stranger Things Into the Fire, number one, with Jody Hauser back doing the writing. Ryan Kelly on the pencils, Lebo Underwood on the inks, Triana Farrell on the colors, Nate Picos of Blambot on the letters, and Victor Kalvechev on the covers. Now, this takes place several years after the death of Francine at Hawkins Lab. You might remember Francine from Stranger Things 6. So the timeline here, we're looking at 1985, and it starts out in Boston. Now, the focus is on the escape test subjects of Marcy and Ricky. Now, basically, and again, no spoilers here, but what I can tell you is that they're trying to find some of the other subjects that are out in the world to see if they need help, which, you know, noble thing to do, right? Now, that takes them on a journey that reveals... Some very interesting news about Marcy's sister. And again, if you read Stranger Things 6, you know what I'm talking about. Now, that's not the only thing that they find along the way, though. It's really hard for me to tell you too much more without spoiling anything. But we do get to see Ricky's powers in action. The jury's still out on what's going on with Marcy. Now, I mentioned Stranger Things 6, which was the last arc that Jody Hauser did for Stranger Things. Now, you, you don't have to read that to be able to read this, but it would certainly be helpful because there are some references there and you'll have a better sense of who the characters are and a better appreciation. Plus, it's just a darn good story anyway, so you should go back and read it. Not absolutely 100% necessary, though, at this point in this issue. That doesn't mean that that won't change coming up in future issues. The art's also very similar to what it is in that book, and it does a really good job of cat- capturing the nostalgia vibe of ni- of the 1980s. And this is some- as someone who was in New England in the 1980s, in the mid-1980s, I could tell you that especially the style captured very, very well there in the atmosphere too in the short time that we do get to see that in this book. So I think they did do a very, very good job with that. Now, I- I- again, I really like the way that things are set up here, and there's a very interesting dynamic that goes on between Ricky and Marcy and how each of them feels about what it is that they're doing. 
again, that's the best thing that I can t- tell you without spoiling anything. But I think Marcy's interest is going to be a lot more piqued now that we know what we know after this first issue. And there's a little bit of something else going on in the background, too, but I'm not going to tell you about that because I don't want to spoil that for you either. But I think you should throw this in your poll box as well. So what a great way to start out 2020 with a poll on both sides. So make sure you're getting not just Thor number one from Marvel Comics, but Stranger Things into the fire number one from Dark Horse as well. That's going to do it for what we're reading. And oh yeah, it's finally time. My spoiler-filled review of Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. I've been waiting long enough. It's time to do it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV. You're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The wait is finally over. Yes, I've waited long enough to be able to give a spoiler-filled review of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Yes, I'm sure you've seen it by now, but I wanted to give you plenty of time to be able to do a spoiler-filled review from me of this movie. So I can't say the word spoiler enough here in the beginning of this review. So this is fair warning, just in case you haven't seen it yet, this will be a spoiler-filled review. Now, I'm not going to go on for like 30 minutes about this. I know that I certainly could because this is the the end of the Skywalker saga. This is the an ending that is decades in the making. But I want to preface my review by saying this. And that's that I didn't really go into this movie expecting some sort of epic conclusion. And I'll tell you why. Because... This is a story that's been told over many decades from many different minds. So to me, you can't take something like the original trilogy and tell the rest of that story 30 years later. You just can't do it. I mean, you you could even say 40 years later if you want to be technical about it, I guess. But you you just can't do that. That that move, those set of three movies, the original trilogy were kind of always meant to stand on their own. And then one day they decided to make prequels. And then one day they decided that that wasn't good enough and that they were going to finish out the story. Or maybe this was a story that, you know, should have always been finished out in the first place. But it's, it's the connections aren't as there as I think that a lot of people want to believe that they are. So that's why I took, and, and ever since The Force Awakens, I have taken these movies as someone else's vision of how they would have seen this story ending. And that story could be seen through the eyes of... Obviously, several fans think that they should have ended it differently or that there's stuff that should have been done differently. And that's your vision. Well, this is someone else's vision. J.J. Abrams, to be exact, since he did two out of these three movies anyway. So this is basically his vision of how he thinks the Skywalker saga should end. And that's what I took it for. And I will say this as someone who is a fan of J.J. Abrams' work overall. So I go into this already knowing it's being done by somebody whose work that I enjoy. Now, if you don't enjoy J.J. Abrams' work or you haven't in the past, odds are you're probably not going to enjoy this because J.J. does what J.J. does. And that's and that's to be said for basically any director. And we can argue whether or not he was the right choice until the the do-backs come home, okay? So let, let's just not do that. Let's just take this movie 
for what it is. And I'm going to talk about that. Now that I've rambled on for like three minutes about that, let me get into this. Now, I don't want to really address any of the criticisms that I've seen online either, although I will talk about a couple of different things. But I will say, one thing I was given in this movie was entertainment. I was entertained throughout this movie. And I didn't think there were a whole lot of fan servicey moments. I knew that there were going to be some. I knew that some of that was going to revolve around C-3PO and, and of course, how it, it, you thought his mind was going to have to get wiped to get that information from the Sith dagger. And it turns out, you know, not so much because, yes, R2 did have some of his memory backed up anyway. So it wasn't a complete mind wipe. So at first, I, that didn't really, that didn't have the effect on me that I thought it would. Now, when I thought that Chewie was dead, that one hit me hard because I thought, look, JJ, you've taken enough from me already. Don't you dare take Chewie from me. I mean, we already knew that we were going to lose Leia for obvious reasons, but I, I did not I did not think that we were going to lose Chewie, and thankfully, we didn't. But I will say that one thing that I, I kind of do take issue with, and, I've, and, I've, and I have seen this online, and I do want to address this, and that's saying that this was that these movies should have never been Ray's story. It shouldn't have been centered around Ray. And I think if you feel that way, you're kind of missing the point. What you're not seeing is that this isn't Ray's story. This is Ben and Ray's story. This is Kylo Ren and Ray's story. And it always has been from the beginning. We dismiss Kylo Ren because you see him as the Sith adversary to the Jedi hero or heroes or the resistance or whatever you want to call them. And it's pushed aside. And then this movie kind of illuminates the fact that this has also been Ben Solo's story all along. And what I was worried about with this was that Ray would turn and Ben would also turn and he would have to fight her down. And and that's how this movie would have to end. And when in reality it was... Ray's fear, much like Luke's fear, almost got in the way of her doing what she needed to do. Now, I'm not sure if it was on one of one of the podcasts here or if it was on down in nerdypodcast.com in an article I wrote or a video that I did or whatever, but I'm pretty sure that I said that Ray could be a Palpatine. Pretty sure that I called that. Now, I might have said great-granddaughter because I I'm, I might have been really thinking you know, I, I might have gotten the timeline a little bit fuzzy there, but I, I was I'm pretty darn sure that I had that one. And I was pretty proud of myself for that, actually. And I kind of did see that coming because it didn't make sense for her to be a Skywalker. Just, that just that seemed too easy. I didn't think that they would go that route. And then you find out what the Emperor's ultimate plan is. And actually, you know what? I didn't have a problem with the plan because and and I know that that's been another point of contention saying that the plan that he had made no sense. What he wanted was for the Sith to live on and he knew that one of two things were going to happen. Either it was going to live on through his blood through his family, which would be just as good as having him do it, or it would live on through him because he would just take their power which he tried to do and take their life force which he tried to do. So either way, he figured it was a win-win. As far as the army of, of Star Destroyers was concerned, that was never 
really the plan to like destroy all the planet. That was never really the plan, if you want to think about it. Because if you go back to Return of the Jedi, that whole attack from the Empire was basically just a way to fuel Luke's fear and anger to get him to turn to the dark side and take his play and take his father's place at the Emperor's side. Remember how he basically made Luke watch as his friends were getting gunned down in Jedi, and that's what almost turned him. Well, the same can be said here in Rise of Skywalker with Rey when he opens it up and says, look, your friends are going to be dead in a few minutes. You might want to kill me so you can be the Sith that we know that you can be because you're my granddaughter and take my place, and then the Sith will basically rise again. Now, ultimately, of course, she decides not to do that, and and Kylo and Ben Solo being a very big part of that decision. So, in, in a manner of speaking, that is a kind of a callback to Return of the Jedi and has been one of the criticisms of these movies is that, you know, he's just taking beats from the original trilogy. And, and that is certainly... I mean, that's legitimate because I feel like that is a beat from the original trilogy. So the Emperor's plan was never to destroy the entire galaxy, really. He was just doing it. You know, remember, the Empire always did things to make a point. They always did things to get your attention. Because why destroy everything when there'd be nothing left to rule, right? There'd be nothing left to suppress. So you can't destroy all these worlds. It's either, you know, bend the knee or be destroyed. Okay, but at the same time, they're not going to destroy everything because then that's, you know, less people to oppress, less money in the coffers and all that good stuff. So that was never the plan. The plan was that was used, that was a very elaborate way to try to manipulate Rey to do what Emperor Palpatine wanted her to do. Now, what I did really love about that little final battle was that we got definitive endings this time. I always felt like Jedi was open-ended. I never really felt like the Emperor was dead. And and fellow fans and my family and friends all made fun of me for that, saying, how could he not be dead? And I can only think as a comic book fan that, you know, like Tom Waltz said once in an interview on the show, it's comics, man. Well, it's also sci-fi, man, and just throwing somebody down a hole apparently doesn't kill them in the Star Wars world because the Emperor knocked Ben Solo down that hole, and that didn't work because he crawled right back out of it. Knocking someone down a hole is not how you kill someone in Star Wars, apparently. So let's just get that out of the way right now. So, But this time... We see the Emperor, we we see him die. I mean, we get to see him fried to a crisp, basically, by his own force lightning, okay? This is done. It's over. He's gone. It's a, the, the Sith Temple so there sort of toppled or wherever the hell he was hiding out for all this time. That's gone. It's done. It's over. We also see... Ben Solo dies as a result of that battle, and then he disappears, and of course, you know, into the force. That's over. He's gone. It's done. We get that definitiveness. We also see that the First Order, all that's that's all done now. It's all over. Peace is finally in the galaxy. We, it, we have these definitive moments. Now, does peace ever last? That is the, that's the million-dollar question. This is supposed to be the end of the saga. Will it be? Only time will tell, and money talks. You know that for sure. I think that this is probably 
the end, especially since we see Ray bury the sabers, Leia and Luke's sabers in the sand there in Tatooine. Now, here's another thing. She, there's, there, I've seen no indication or was given no indication that she was going to stay there, by the way. I don't know where fans are getting that, oh, she's going to just going to leave her friends behind and she's going to stay there. No, she never said, I don't, I, you know, this place looks awesome. I think I'll build a condo here. She never gave any indications that she was staying. She's burying the Sabres back home. She's placing them on sacred Skywalker ground. And the reason that she calls herself Skywalker, by the way, is that basically the force is in her, right? And that was the whole point. The force is in everyone who was, uh, who was a Jedi. So she chooses that name. That, that doesn't necessarily mean she is a Skywalker by blood, but she's a Skywalker by force kind of thing, in, in a manner of speaking, in a play on words there. She is, that's the name that she wants to give herself by who she was trained by, doubly, by the way. She was trained by two Skywalkers. Think about that for a second. So, of course, that she's going to adopt that name, right? And you could make the, and, you know, also Ben was a Skywalker, technically, Right, because Leia was his mother, and it looked like her and Ben were going to get together at some point. Which I know that you know, kind of everybody who was hoping for Ray and Finn to get together, that kind of made you upset a little bit. But that was what she chose for herself, and she kind of earned the right to do that with everything that happened. So that's kind of how I wanted to go cut right to the quick. And talk about how I felt about those about those couple of things. I also want to talk about the Sith Wayfinder, which was basically a huge, huge part of this entire movie, is finding the Sith Wayfinder so they can find their way to Exegol to take care of the Emperor. Now we see Kylo Ren find his with the Knights of Ren very early, and I thought it was really good to establish Kylo Ren as this badass fighter once again in the beginning of this movie after kind of chopping him down a few pegs in in the last movie and in part of The Force Awakens as well. It was nice to see him, now that he's the supreme leader, kind of puff his chest a little bit there. And it didn't seem like, obviously not everybody was on board with him being the supreme leader, and we saw that's why General Hux was the mole in the first place, which I thought was a really cool move, but I did see, I did kind of see that coming. So I thought that that was a very interesting way to go. But I do think that the the search for the Sith Wayfinder was worth the time that it spent in the movie because it introduced us to a whole bunch of different characters. It introduced us to, to Janna, who was played by Naomi Aki, and she was another stormtrooper that abandoned the First Order. We got to see that whole storyline play out. And then we also met Zori, who was Carrie, Rus- Carrie Russell's character, who I really, really, really want to see again in some capacity. I know that they're going to be doing that Poe Dameron series, and there, maybe we're going to get some of his Spice Runner days in there. I really want to see this Zori Bliss character again because I, I just fell in love with that character immediately. I loved her sassiness. The look of the suit was amazing. I loved her dynamic with Poe Dameron and Oscar Isaac's character. That was just there was just something so right about that whole thing. So I need to see more of that in my life. I need to see more Zori. And 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 I like the way that they introduced Lando back into the fold as well. And and again 
Lando shows up exactly when you need him, right? And by the way, Babu Frick, if we could get Babu Frick and Baby Yoda together, that'd be super great. Can we make that happen somehow at some point? I, I would just really, really love to see that. And, but but I digress. But I actually think that it was worth it because it it gave you something that you tangible to search for and not just focus on a battle that's not really happening right now. You know what I mean? There was really no battle with the First Order to be had because they'd been knocked down so many pegs. There really wasn't much left, and they needed something to kind of ramp things up a little bit, and the Emperor was that thing. But to make it that easy to find the Emperor would have made it a really short movie, and, not, and we wouldn't have gotten all these interesting little side bits as a result of that. And we also got the the conclusion of, basically, there are others here that will help you fight this. And we see that, we see all those ships coming to the aid of the Resistance there at the end in that final battle that were there to help because... The First Order wins if they think that they're alone. And that was a great message, I thought, in the movie. And I don't know why people are so upset with all of this stuff because I thought that that was a cool way to go and that, and that you know, you send the message out and people, regular people, want to help. Regular citizens of the galaxy want to help in this battle because, remember, Luke Skywalker started out as a regular citizen of Tatooine who just wanted to help and just wanted to join the Academy. And eventually, you know, that blossomed into him being the the, the greatest Jedi ever. So uh, you just have to remember the and Han Solo was a smuggler. I mean, you have to remember that this story started from humble beginnings anyway. Why shouldn't it end with the same humble endings? It's just it's a great full circle moment, I thought, in this movie. Now, really quickly, because I don't really want to go on too much longer about this, because I, I feel like I could be making and remaking these points until the cows come home. One thing that I did have a problem with was that we never find out what Finn was going to tell Ray. We think we know, and that's the one beef that I have that I agree with fans on is that that's something that should have been that we, that should have been addressed. It should have been said, even if it was for five seconds. Even if it was one of those things where, you know, Luke, when, when Luke and Leia find out that they're brother and sister, that was a really quick thing that happened and, and they didn't make a big deal out of it and they moved on. They could have done the same thing with Finn and Ray, and they just chose not to do that. Now, does Finn have the power of the Force? We'll never really know that. We'll never really know if it was just a deep connection with Ray. And by the way, that's how I think Ben was able to get back to Exegol. You know, he didn't have the Wayfinder, or did he? We never really see that. So that's how he made his way back, in my opinion. It was that connection with Ray, and that's how he found his way back. Now, you could make the argument of, well, if that's the case, then how come he didn't know where she was on the ship at the time? Well, you know, that's a valid argument, but he did find out where she was because he found a landmark that was in his, in his quarters, and that's how he knew where to go. So that, And maybe he saw something like that. When he, you know, I'm really trying to fill the holes here, but you can't fill every plot hole. And and maybe that is one that needed to be filled, but I don't think so. I just, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I've loved these characters from the very beginning. If you didn't, that's okay. It's okay that you didn't like this movie, but I, I got to tell you, I was entertained. I thought it was a fitting ending. I didn't think that there was any 
way that you could really end this in a definitive way, and they did it in one of the best ways you could have possibly done it, in my opinion, and that I never really expected this to live up to any sort of decades-old billing of a story that will never, never, never match the original trilogy. And that is just a fact. There's nothing that anybody could have done. Sometimes something is just done so well that you cannot recreate it. You can only hope to pay homage to it. And I think that's exactly what this new trilogy did the best that they could and introduced some new characters that, quite frankly, were pretty darn interesting and had some pretty darn good storylines, too, by the way. And, you know, we complain about reboots, and then we complain when we get new characters. I think we should celebrate the fact that somebody tried to bring new characters into the Star Wars universe and tried to meld that with a story that probably never should have tried to be concluded in the first place or redone in the first place. But you know what? We got three new Star Wars movies out of this, and I can only be happy about that. And I will happily, again, watch Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker because I was very entertained and I thought it was a very fitting ending to this new trilogy not necessarily living up to the overall original trilogy because I don't think anything ever really could. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. How about we talk a little bit of Mandalorian and do a spoiler-filled review of that final episode next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Violet from The Flash, and you're listening to The Down and Nerdy Podcast. It is the quest to save the child, and my spoiler-filled review of the final episode, the eighth episode of Star Wars The Mandalorian from Disney+. And again, I don't want to do too much on this, but I mean, it really was the quest to save the child, right? That's kind of what was going on, and we see The Mandalorian is trying to, and I know John Favreau says don't call him Baby Yoda. Sorry, John, that ship's already sailed. So uh, we're going to be calling him Baby Yoda from here until the cows come home, unless you give, unless you want to give us a name, because then that's always an option too. But anyway, what we're seeing is is that they're basically trying to protect the baby from the Empire and from Moff Gideon, by the way, who ended up being a pretty badass character. There at the end, I gotta say, I wasn't expecting a new character to be introduced and make that much of an impact in the last couple of episodes, but they really did. So you kind of knew this was going to happen, right? But what I didn't expect was basically the big hero moments from IG-11, and that is from Taika Waititi, because man, and by the way, great job directing the episode as well. I never knew that a nanny droid could be so amazing. And he really, really was. You want to talk about a reprogrammed droid that really took his job super seriously? Uh, like nanny slash assassin of anybody that tries to do harm to this child? That really worked out. And it and it was funny in moments that that weren't intentionally funny, but really, really worked within the story and and also how they get out of that whole mess and having to have him self-destruct. I thought that that was a neat little moment that they had to do. We also got plenty of goodbyes as well because we got to see what happened after. Basically, it was almost like the shootout at the OK Corral, right? When you had the Mandalorian pinned down there with Cara Dune and also 
Graf Karga, they were all kind of pinned down in that in 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 basically the headquarters of the of the of the uh, order, right? They they were kind of all pinned down in there, and all of a sudden they they just weren't, and they got their way out of there. They went through the sewers, and then the Mandalorian was injured, and that's when we get to see him take the helmet off because it was the only one, only way that he was going to get healed, right? And I don't know what fans were expecting to see. You knew Pedro Pascal was in there. What were you expecting to see? I, I, I mean, I know that some fans were let down by that. I saw exactly what I thought I was going to see, an injured dude. I mean, I don't, sometimes we build these things up in our heads, and, and, and I don't know why that is, but that's exactly what he ended up being. He ended up being an injured dude, and you put the helmet back on, and you move on with your life, and you go down the river of lava. That's basically how it is. And then we also get... We also get the armorer at one point. We get to see the Mandalorians are almost basically, they're almost basically wiped out by these stormtroopers and by the Empire. And then you've got the armorer there and the Mandalorian wants to stay behind. And she says, no, your charge is with the child. You took this child in. Now he's your responsibility. You need to find his home and bring him back there. And that's going to be the basis of where this story goes from here, clearly. And I've really got no problem with that, by the way. And then we get to see a couple of other things at the end of this. We get to see that that is basically the Mandalorian's calling. And we get to see Moff Gideon introduce the Darth Saber into things. Now, I don't know where that's going to go necessarily, but I guarantee you he's going to be the one that's going to try and track the Mandalorian down wherever he's going to be going. So that is going to be the classic cat and mouse game from here on out, although the Mandalorian shown that he was able to dodge some pretty big bounty hunters in the past. And are we going to see Cara Dune join the ranks? I will we'll find out at some point. I mean, Gref actually, you know, extended her that invitation. So we'll have to see if that's what ends up what ends up happening or not joining the guild. Who knows? So and here's the other thing, too, by the way. Fans are really getting on Jason Sudeikis who played one of the bike troopers for punching baby Yoda. Yeah, I mean, we know, you, you got to know that wasn't exactly Jason Sudeikis, right? It's not like he chose to do that in the moment. Yeah, let me punch baby Yoda in this bag. And that, that'll that really make people upset. No, no, no. That's it's. I mean, that was, it's in the script. You got to do what's in the script. And baby Yoda was fine. I mean, you, you got to see him, you know, have that moment where he, that, that flamethrower stormtrooper, where he throws the... the flames back at him and knocks him back a few pegs. That was pretty awesome, right? Baby Yoda can can take care of himself, and apparently he can take a punch, too. I just, just want to put that out there, that that we know that Baby Yoda can, can handle himself. But, you know, just knowing where the second season is going to go now and knowing how they rounded things out, again, I think pretty darn nicely, by the way. It was a great way to round out this first season. We know the second season is going to be back in the fall of this year, by the way, so that's a pretty amazing thing. And I just think that it, this was the original series from Star Wars that I think that we've been wanting for a while. Something original, something brand new, and that's what The Mandalorian, in I think every episode, brought us on Disney+. Plus has brought us something that was original. Yeah, there was still some familiar stuff there. You've got the Empire, you've got Stormtroopers and things like that. And yeah, you've got some... You had some familiar faces from the Bounty Hunters, but at the same time, this was an original story for the, I mean, I would say at least 90% of this was original, and I loved that. And we got to see 
The Mandalorian did have his struggles at times, but there are also plenty of times where he stood up and showed that he was a badass and he could take down several dudes and that would be and that would not be a problem at all. And that there were also some funny beats in this too that were completely natural and weren't forced in. And this just was so, just done so well. The story was told so well from start to finish, I thought. That was one of the reasons I loved it. It was one of my favorite shows of the past year in 2019. I think that this show did something that was something that fans have been clamoring for. And that is an original star Wars story with original characters. And that's exactly what we got. Plus we expanded Yoda's species and hopefully we'll peel that onion a little bit as the seasons wear on and get to learn more about Yoda's species, where they're from. Do they all have the powers of the force? Does baby Yoda have the power of the force or is this something completely different? By the way, the force healing that we saw in Rise of Skywalker, clearly there is some precedent for that because we saw baby Yoda do it a couple of times. So don't act like that just came out of nowhere. Now, granted, that's a little bit of a new thing, but remember this all occurs before the force awakens. So there's that. I just want to put that out there by the way, because I didn't mention that in my rise of Skywalker review. So, so anybody that had a little bit of a problem with that force healing stuff, it might be new, but it's not completely new and it's been done. And I guess it depends on your powers in the force. But again, that's if baby Yoda is, is has the force powers, which, it seems like he does, but I don't want to ramble on too much more here. The Mandalorian ended really, really well. Yeah, there was some rough acting from Gina Carano and a couple of other. Yeah, I mean, that happens, though. Not every performance from every person in a show is going to be gold, but don't let one or two things take away from the fact that we got some great performances from The Mandalorian, from IG-11. Carl Weathers' character was amazing as well. Griff was amazing, I thought, too. And, and the way his arc kind of came full circle. And, of course, Baby Yoda. I mean, enough needs to be said with that. So I cannot wait for the second season of The Mandalorian to show up this fall. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of The Mandalorian finale. Up next, yeah, there are a few bits of nerd news to talk about this week. We'll do that on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Marvel's already making headlines in the new year. It's time for nerd news. And the first one comes from Marvel Mr. Everything, Kevin Feige, who said in a recent panel at the New York Film Academy that Scarlet Witch, Wanda Maximoff, is the most powerful character in the MCU. Of course, this is in reference to Endgame. You've seen it. You know what happens. You saw what Scarlet Witch was able to do. To Thanos. Now, she could have killed Thanos. Sure, it's, it certainly seems that way, but you know, Thanos eventually did get killed by Tony Stark anyway, and it seemed like Captain Marvel was doing a pretty good job against Thanos as well. So here's my thing, and I'm not saying that I necessarily disagree with what Feige is saying. If you've read House of M, you know how powerful. Scarlet Witch is. You know how, what Wanda Maximoff is capable of at her most powerful. We just haven't seen that yet here in the MCU. What we did see in Endgame was a very, very, very angry Wanda reacting to Thanos. Okay, so that makes perfect sense. And maybe that's kind of pushing her towards what we know she can be 
in the MCU. What I'm saying is, is that here's the problem that I have with this. And that is, whether it be in the Solo movie or an Infinity War, Endgame, whatever you want to, whatever references you want to make, it seems like Marvel's, Marvel Studios specifically, went out of their way to tell us that Captain Marvel was the most powerful character in the MCU. Now, without coming out and saying it, nobody actually came out and said that, but actions speak louder than words. Basically, you had Mar- you had Captain Marvel cutting through everything and everyone, pretty much, and-, and showing us that, wow, she's super powerful, she's the future of the MCU, blah, blah, blah. And then, all of a sudden, Kevin Feige comes out and says this. And I think that this is also very interesting because... This leads me into the next story, and I'll kind of combine the two here. So, you say that Scarlet Witch is the most powerful character in the MCU. Okay, so you're starting a new phase, right? So, that means you're going to be giving her her own movie, right? Like you're giving Black Widow. No, they're not doing that. What they're doing is they're making Scarlet Witch a part of Doctor Strange 2, and she is a... Uh, by all intents and purposes, a secondary character. Now, could she end up being the female lead in that movie? Sure, but she's not the lead. She's in Doctor Strange 2. Okay, let's take this a step further. So, you're going to give her her own Disney Plus series, right? No. You're going to do one division, which is her teaming up with Vision because, let's face it, she apparently can't stand on her own, even though she's the most powerful character in the MCU. Now, maybe you give her kind of top billing in this series. You could have easily called it Scarlet Witch and Vision. Could have called it that, but you didn't. Maybe WandaVision's more clever. Maybe it's because it's got more of a, like a 1950s sitcom-y type feel, which is what the, kind of the only thing we know about WandaVision at this point. By the way, the second part of this story is that WandaVision is going to be coming out in 2020 instead of 2021. I'll get back to that here in a second, though. It's just amazing to me that the, it, it's almost like Feige just decided this five minutes ago, that this was going to be his answer. If you knew this all along, you would have been planning her ascension to give us a solo movie because you'd have that much confidence in this character being the most powerful, right? Now, you any fan can make any argument against that, saying that it's Thor, that it's Hulk, that it is Thanos, even though we saw what happened to Thanos. You want to talk about Galactus. You want to keep going down the list of characters that are, well, I mean, Galactus not currently in the MCU, so I guess you got me there. But you see what I'm saying? You could make case for other characters being stronger, even Captain Marvel. And, you know, you could make that argument, and that's what fans do, right? Again, I'm not saying that Feige's wrong here. What I'm saying is is that your actions aren't telling me that you actually believe in her enough to give her that the due that she deserves then if she is the most powerful character. It took you how long to make a Captain Marvel movie, now you're finally making a Black Widow movie, and yet here I am sitting here looking at Phase 4, searching 
for a Scarlet Witch movie that I'm not finding. And you could still do a Scarlet Witch movie and have WandaVision, by the way. The, the, the two aren't, you know, mutually exclusive. You, you can do both if you really, really wanted to. And don't tell me there's not enough depth there. First of all, don't say, the, well, well, you do WandaVision. What, left, what, what is there left to tell a story in a Scarlet Witch movie? Oh, I don't know. You know, hundreds of pages of comics, maybe? I'm not even saying you've got to do House of M. I'm just saying there's material there if you want it. And there's there's even material there in the MCU. There are places to take this. You just don't want to because you don't think the character will draw on, on her own. And that's just the bottom line. Whether you think she's powerful or not, you don't think she'll draw on her own. And maybe that's a smart move on Marvel's part, but maybe it isn't. But you need to make up your mind over who your strongest character is because you've got to build a future here. And I know that there should be a lot of strong confidence in the MCU because they've been printing money and making some good movies. But all I'm saying is, is that ever since that snap, nothing's guaranteed. you just got to be careful. Now back to WandaVision for a second. We know that Falcon and Winter Soldier is coming out in the fall of 2020. So we still got a little ways to go with that. So if you're going to sneak WandaVision in, in 2020 as well, it's going to have to be likely December, if not really, really late November, because it looks like we're going with six episodes for these Disney Plus series. So if you're starting Winter Soldier in late September, early October, then that takes you into November and maybe even December, depending on when the premiere date is. So you'd have to release that around Christmas. But, you know, December's kind of a, a, a time that's been kind of key for releases on streaming services as far as I mean Witcher came out in December right and there's there's been plenty of other December releases in the past so it's not like you can't do that a lot of network stuff is on hiatus at that point and the streaming services don't seem afraid to put out their shows during the hiatus I mean the Mandalorian finale was during a winter break for network TV so I, I don't see why you couldn't do that. I just think it's interesting that they decided to move that up. Clearly, there's a reason for that that we have not been revealed yet. But that's not all from Marvel this week. Because New Mutants, the movie that just won't die, apparently, is still on track to be released on April the 3rd in theaters. And will apparently be released in its original form. That's right. Josh Boone pretty much confirms on Instagram without actually coming out and saying it. That the original version of the movie that he, that was that he was a part of will be the one that hits theaters. So no reshoots, no new characters added, none of that stuff. They're just going to put the movie out as it is. It's almost like Disney saying, you know what? Screw it. Just put it out there and we'll see what happens. Now, here I am thinking, well, maybe they're trying to hold, they're trying to avoid the whole, you know, release the Snyder Cut phenomenon. Because you put this movie out and it's no good, you're always going to wonder what the original cut was like, right? So then you're stuck with a rogue cut situation that they had for one of the X-Men movies where you had to release the rogue cut because she got cut from the movie and you don't understand why. And then you've got DC still fighting the whole release the Snyder cut thing when it comes to the Justice League movie. So maybe that is a small part of it. The other side of that coin is is that, you know what, maybe all this turmoil actually has helped draw attention to this movie that might not have really gotten enough attention otherwise. Because, I mean, let's face it, New Mutants 
yeah, it, it was. It's a good idea to do almost like a horror spin on an X Men movie, but it's still an X Men spinoff, and those have been hit or miss, quite frankly, from from what we've gotten already. Obviously, Deadpool's done well, but that's Deadpool, and that's completely different. New Mutants was always going to be a risk, whether it was 20th Century Fox doing it. Or Disney doing it. Now, if you're going to do the original cut, it'll be the 20th Century Fox version. And if it's bad, you can blame it on them because they did it. And, but but just doesn't seem like Disney would just put something out just because. Although, if, if they, they certainly have no problem taking losses on movies either. But they're still putting it out in theaters as well and not in, on Disney+, Plus, which is something that they could absolutely do should they want to. But this could just be their way of saying, you know what, let's just get this over with so people stop talking about New Mutants altogether. Let's just put it out, let it be what it is, and then we can move on with our lives. Maybe this is just them taking that bath to move on with their lives so they just don't have to talk about New Mutants anymore. And if it's good and if it makes money, then great. And you could maybe continue that storyline at some point. But whether they like it or not now, this is going to be their introduction of the X-Men into the Disney world, quite frankly. This this is what it's going to be. I didn't say the MCU, because this isn't an MCU movie. But this will be the first Marvel X-Men movie released under the Disney umbrella, uh, umbrella, whether they like it or not, even though it was made, done, completely done by 20th Century Fox. You own that now. You're putting out this product. That means this is now a Disney movie, whether you like it or not. Not necessarily a Marvel Studios movie, but it is a Disney movie. And I'll be curious to see what flashes up on that screen when that movie starts. Will it say Marvel Studios or will it just say Marvel like we've seen in the past? We will have to wait until, hopefully anyway, on April 3rd to see. I'm still not completely convinced that that's when it's going to happen. Although, if you're not, if you're showing the original version, what difference does it make? Finally, I wanted to talk about this real quick. The fact that the Uncharted movie, speaking of trouble has lost yet another director. This according to Deadline, and that is Travis Knight, who is out now because there's a scheduling conflict, and then Marvel comes into play again here with Tom Holland and the third Spider-Man movie. Now, Holland's still attached for the movie, as is Mark Wahlberg. Looks like they're going to be sticking around. The movie's still set to come out from Sony Pictures on December the 18th of this year, but with these scheduling conflicts with Tom Holland there's a chance that date could get moved it seems pretty likely so I'll make sure I update you on that if that does happen but the script is done they just need a new director at this point but you know PlayStation Productions this is kind of their maiden voyage with Sony Pictures already off to a very rocky start this movie was always a good idea at the time, this was one of those few where if you were to look at video game movies and be like, you know, if you could make it work, this would be one where you could absolutely make it work. And, of course, you're going to take some creative license with this as well. But, I mean, with the turmoil that's going on here, I'm going to go ahead and do the whole should this movie actually be made at this point. You had a good director. You were on the right track. And then all of a sudden, yeah, not so much. And maybe this could be a little bit of a Disney screwing Sony over the whole Spider-Man thing. Because let's face it, Sony, I think, won out on that deal. And maybe that could be part of it. And maybe you think I'm overthinking this. But you know what? Disney has the time to think about these sort of things, quite frankly. I mean, whether you realize that or not, 
they can make these kind of moves if they want to. Not absolutely 100% not saying that that's exactly what they're doing. All I'm saying is, yeah, it could be what they're doing. But I, I don't know. This is one of those things where you keep delaying it and then maybe you lose one of your stars because of that. And then you're in a whole different set of trouble. You really need to make sure you get the right choice for director now. I'm just going to get more and more leery about the Uncharted movie as things go. And I'm not sure that that's a good thing. It's going to do for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking about Season 2 of Manifest, which is coming this Monday. We'll talk to Dr. Sanvi Ball. Parveen Kaur herself is up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sean Ryan. And I'm Eric Kripke. And we're the creators of Timeless on NBC, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'll tell you one show that I couldn't wait to return, and that is Manifest. And you know the passengers are going to return eventually. Season 2 begins on Monday on NBC at 10 p.m., and we happen to have Dr. Sandy Ball herself. It's Parveen Kaur. Parveen, how you doing? I'm good. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Now, it feels like forever, honestly, since the, since the second season was going to premiere. So what's it felt like for you? Well, I mean, we we just wrapped shooting not too long ago, but, I mean, it, it does feel... I, I feel like I need to watch the recap. <laughs> <laughs> Because you're right. I mean, all this time does go by. I mean, yeah, I mean, we just recently wrapped. So it, season two is still pretty fresh for me. Um, but uh, I, I'm starting to see all the, the promo that's coming out, which is really cool. And also, you know, a lot of the recap stuff on online. So it, it's, I mean, yeah, it, you're right. It has been a minute. Now, the passengers just seem to keep getting in more and more there's more and more on their plate, more to deal with. I mean, they're worshipped, and then there's some people who think they're terrorists. Mm-hmm. They're the government, the major, mm-hmm. all this stuff. So how do you feel like the show has been able to kind of balance all of these perspectives so well? Um, that's a good question. I mean, reading the scripts, I mean, obviously I haven't seen it, and I'm going to be watching it with everyone else. But in reading the scripts, it certainly did feel balanced, and I think that's part, you know, with the, we have a great writing staff. Uh, that writes out of LA and Jeff Rake, the creator of the show, has done a really good job in giving everyone, I think, a a, a, a full body, rounded, you know, storyline for everyone. I, in reading it, it never felt like there was a balance, truly. And and I think it, it can be tricky with ensemble uh, cast as well because you're right, there isn't that much time. You have maybe I think 45 minutes um, per episode, but. They, they are very full episodes, and they are very meaty, and we, we don't really waste any time getting into the nitty-gritty of everything that's going on. So I appreciated that, reading it. You know, you, you really we really do just jump right back in. Um, but, I mean, I, I you, you never know until it airs, right, how, it, um, how it's going to translate. But shooting it and reading the scripts, um, it, it did feel like everyone – it felt exciting, and it felt really intense. So I, I think it will translate well. It's funny that you bring up the scripts because it seems like every episode of last season had that like cliffhanger finale type feel to it each week. So talk about the table reads that you guys have, the ensemble cast. What's that like for you all guys? What's that like for you guys to sit down and plan each episode? 
Well, the funny thing is we don't do any table reads. We did a table read for the first episode of season two, which was, it was, you know, it was really exciting because the whole family is back together and right. everyone, you know, back in New York. Um, so that was really fun. And it, just because it's nice to see everyone. But we do have a group chat. The cast uh, with our showrunner has a group chat. So every time we get a script and we'd all individually read our, our script, that group chat would be blowing up like an hour later so yeah i mean yeah but we didn't have any uh uh table reads but uh just reading them on our own and then just kind of staying in touch and constantly connecting with one another and freaking out and calling each other and it's it's fun you guys just modernized it it's cool yeah yeah i mean honestly we had again like back to your question of there being so much and how to balance it we had a lot to shoot i i mean i'm I'm a little bit happy we didn't have to do the table reads because, you know, you it's there was a lot. There was a it's an intense season. We got a lot of action, a lot of drama this season. So I mean, yeah, I, I guess maybe table reads are old school now. I don't know, but we just kinda went right into it and we're just for shooting and every week was, you know, you're just trying to bang out these episodes and, and make them as uh, engaging and as thrilling as possible. But um yeah, maybe it is old school. I don't know. Now, speaking of the passengers that don't exactly, I mean, excuse me, speaking of the people who don't see the passengers in the most positive light, we kind of start to see that come out a little bit at the end of last season with the billboards and stuff that happened with Ben and his family. What can you tell us about those Xers and how might we see that sentiment increase in season two? Yeah, I mean, people, oh, how can I answer this? Well, they're they're not the nicest group of people. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and they are, you know, you're going to see a couple of the passengers put in some real sticky, scary, dangerous situations um, because of the extras. So, I mean, yeah, stay tuned to, to find out how that unfolds. But uh there is uh, a lot of them and that, that movement grows and grows and grows, you know, and, uh, and the passengers are definitely uh, outnumbered or starting to become outnumbered in terms of, you know, this, this cult, I guess you can say, um, and, and their sentiment and their feelings towards the passengers are very intense and strong. And there's a, that's definitely a, a community of people that are very scary and a, a big threat for the passengers. Talking to Parveen Kaur, who of course plays Dr. Sanvi Ball on Manifest, which returns Monday at 10 o'clock Eastern Time on NBC. Now, Parveen, Sanvi has certainly went through a lot in Season 1, especially towards the end. Now it looks like the major is her therapist. So how much can you tease about what that mm-hmm. dynamic is going to be like? Well, it gets really, I, I mean, it's going to be really complicated. Like she says, definitely way too much, <laughs> which is obviously what it was set up to do. Um and that relationship gets pretty bad and then it, it'll get a little bit better and then it's going to get really bad. So she's definitely, Sandy is on a roller coaster and um, she was on a roller coaster to begin with. And then when she, you know, by the end, it's, she's just, I, I think she's just completely broken. Um, and I'm really excited for people to see that, uh, uh, see more of Sandy and see more of the major as well. I mean, uh, Elizabeth Marvel, who plays the major, is such a fantastic actor, and we're so lucky that we had her on the show. Now, speaking of being broken, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that was really hard for me to see with Sanvi last season was that she was kind of beginning to lose that optimism and hope, and she seemed to be the one that had it more than any of them, I mean, especially when it comes to the calling. So what do you think it's going to take for that positive outlook 
to return, or do you kind of feel like it's still there? It's still like just bubbling under the surface. I mean, I think because Sanvi is such a fighter and she's such a hustler, um, because she's just like she her she is just about trying to solve this, and and not in a way that maybe Ben and Michaela where they're out, you know talking to people and, and chasing and, you know, they're out on the streets. For Sandy, it's like she's in her lab. And, and the way that she's trying to solve it is different from how Michaela and Ben are trying to solve it. Equally as important, of course. But I think just in terms of, like, her hope and her optimism, like, that's just a big part of who she is. Like, she's, you know, been through a lot even outside of the playing, you know, and just becoming so highly regarded in her career in her field like she she's been through a lot you know and and I I think that optimism is probably what got her through those many many years of medical school and many many years of trying to you know you know advance in her career and and I think she carries that on after the plane landing as well like I think she she does believe like she can solve it and any type of clue any anything for her even if it's the smallest clue that could lead to us solving is like she takes that as like a true sign of hope so yeah I mean I I think that's always going to be bubbling under the surface I just think that's who she is no matter what speaking of the things that she's gone through one thing that has was kind of alluded to but we never really dug into was the fact that she was supposed to be with somebody else on that plane and we've kind of seen it teased a little bit now that she's in therapy are we going to maybe hear more about that backstory that we didn't really get as much of in season one? Oh yeah for sure and you're going to learn more about Sanbi in a personal way as well which I you know really pleased to do and happy to find out that you know the audience is going to see Sanbi in a you know in, in her personal life and and you know, diving into her and just making her more complex, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, you, the audience and everyone else is definitely going to find out what happened to Sanvi, uh, you know, prior to the flight, on the flight, on, on that vacation and what was going on. Yeah, for sure. Excellent. Now, we also saw last season that that lab tech discovered the genetic marker that was kind of common to the passengers and people that have had the callings and Sanvi's always been very by the book. She's very professional. So how far do you think she's actually going to go to try to make this thing go away? Oh, she's, uh, yeah, she's about to do some crazy, crazy stuff. <laughs> that, that, uh, Sanvi is very professional and does things out the book is kind of out the window season two. Oh, wow. See, now you've really got my curiosity peaked here. I'm, I'm, I now, I'm, oh, yes. as if I wasn't looking forward to season two more than I was before. But I, I do have one more for you before I let you go, Parveen, and that is that, you know, with all this stress happening in Zombie's life, all the stuff that everyone's going through, she still doesn't know about Cal's drawing from the end of season one. So how how much can you tell us or how can you describe how you think Sanvi's going to react to finding out that little tidbit of information? Um, Again, I think she would take that. And, again, it, it's like... Anytime Sanvi gets information, her science medical brain just starts turning. And I, I don't, I think she would react obviously shocked and what have you. But I also think like she would be able to take that and run with it somehow and, and help her solve, you know, there, there's nothing that she won't take and, and use to her advantage. It's all, it's all information. She's so database. So it's, it's all information that she can take and use to her advantage. 
Um, so that's how I think she, she takes it. Well, now you have a million and one reasons to watch the season two premiere of Manifest, which is going to be happening Monday, January the 6th at 10 p.m. Eastern time on NBC. Make sure you are watching it live. You don't want to miss a second. You don't want it to get spoiled for you on social media either. And we can't wait to see what happens yeah. to Dr. Sanvi Ball. It's Parvi and Kaur. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much. I mean, where do I even start of all the amazing things that you have to look forward to in season two of Manifest? And Parveen hit on all of them. We've got the exes that are coming. We've got this genetic marker situation that needs to be dealt with. The major's her therapist, for God's sake. So, I mean, and that's just one character. One character that you're dealing with. So, hopefully, you're going to be watching Manifest Monday, January the 6th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time on NBC, watch it again on on online and on the app and all that. You're going to want to watch this multiple times because there's always so much going on in Manifest, and that's why it was one of the best shows of the of the past year and of 2018 as well. It's just I've just always been a huge fan of the show, and I'm so glad it got a second season. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Parvi and Core for joining me this week and the folks at NBC. And, of course, anytime you want more information on Manifest or any other show or any of our past shows, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. Also follow us on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy. You never have to apologize for being a nerd, by the way. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds.